So we are uh, studying the book of Esther, or Ezra chapter six and a half, depending upon how you want to, to look at it. I was trying to think about what, what it's like to be Ezra, uh, like in the middle of Ezra to jump over to Esther. How many of you Star Wars fans? Any of you like watch Rogue One? When does Rogue One take place? It's kind of like between what? Between three and four? Is that, is that when it jumps in, you know, with the... With the st- I kind of like the Star Wars thing. It kind of like clicks with me, but yeah, okay. So, so it's this in-between. It's like this little story, the side-shoot story that's kind of like in the middle of a bigger story that gives you the, this perspective. And it's, it's meant for you and for I as, as readers or listeners to make application ourselves. It's made for us to ponder what we learn about God in it, even though God is not mentioned by name um, at all in this book. So as we're reading today, the challenge from the author of the book is for you to be thinking, what is God doing? Why is God doing this? What, what can I learn about God in what I'm not reading specifically about him? It's really fun. So I want to encourage you and challenge you in that way. We left off in Esther chapter 2 and verse 18. We'll read that verse together. Esther chapter 2, verse 18, and then we'll continue with our story. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. And he freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of a king's bounty. So we left our story with a banquet, which is cool because it was a banquet that started this multi-year drama in the first place, wasn't it? Um, If we kind of go back and look at what took place, um, we started with a banquet. And now we're ending this section with a banquet. We like to call these bookends. And the author of Esther likes to do this. He'll repeat a theme. So you'll have a theme or a concept, and then he'll repeat it again. And it's kind of like the beginning and an ending of a section that he's trying to to highlight here. Um, So this quick recap. King Xerxes, the grandson of Cyrus, held a banquet to show off how rich he was and how important he was. Um, And it was a half-year bank, a half-year celebration with a one-week-long feast at the end, and it had a lot of wine. That's an important fact. Okay, there was a lot of a lot of wine. Queen Vashti refused to be summoned by this inebriated king, and we don't know why. We just don't have the facts, but she refused something she normally wouldn't do. King Xerxes banished Vashti denounced her as queen, and sent her away at the advice of his advisors. Then his assistants decided he should go on a new wife hunt, find a new queen. So they started collecting virgins from all over the 127 provinces to find someone that would be worthy to be the queen. He selects Esther, the Jewish orphan, to be the queen of Persia, though she was not to tell anybody that she was a Jew. And he held a banquet to honor this queen. And though it does not say so, I have a feeling that there was a lot of wine at this banquet as well. Just a hunch. Can't can't say that that's in the scriptures, but I have a feeling it was there. So let's pick up with the story. Chapter 2, verse 19. And let's read together. Esther chapter 2, verse 19. I'll be reading from the the Christian Standard uh, Bible, but you're welcome to read along in any one. You're going to notice some different words 
in this pass in these passages, depending on what translation you have, we'll look at some of them together. Esther chapter 2, verse 19. When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, Esther still had not revealed her family background or her ethnicity, as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders, as she always had, while he raised her. During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. And when the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record of the king's, in the king's presence. All right, we got to pause here. There's a lot going on right here. First of all, these virgins are gathered a second time. This is a different batch. Okay, this is round two after they already have a queen. He's just going to keep collecting uh, wives at this point. Um, so this is the second round draft picks, I guess. I don't know how you, how you kind of make that work. Um, the significant detail isn't so much that he kept collecting wives. This particular phrase, this particular reference to the second batch of, of virgins is more of a time reference. It's when this took place, these are the other things that took place. So the author's not trying to draw attention totally to the fact that he just kept collecting wives. It's more about when this happened, this happened. And again, the timing is muddy. We don't have exact dates of when it took place. But what we do know is that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, the king's gate is a very important place to be. It's the place where you can transact business. It's a very official place. Um, important people were people that worked at the gate. So we have Mordecai who's at the gate, um, probably with the other elders. He's there with other security people. He's there with other staff. He's obviously a very important person, not just a gatekeeper anymore, because he was sitting at the gate. He's been somehow promoted a bit to a position of prominence. And while he's there, there's a plot to assassinate the king. And Mordecai overhears it. Now, there's speculation as to why he would overhear this. Like, if you were going to plot an assassination, would you just, like, talk about it among all your coworkers? I mean, think about it. But here's Mordecai at the gate, and he overhears this. So there's speculation as to why that would even happen. And I think the fun one, we, we don't know, but I think one of the fun ones is that they, remember, you have people from 20, 127 different provinces speaking a lot of different languages. That's been brought up throughout the book a couple times. They were probably speaking in their native language. And assuming that Mordecai couldn't understand them. Now, I kind of like this theory. It's just a theory because if you've ever been in a situation where you spoke another language and other people didn't know that you spoke that language, how many of you ever had that experience and you listen in and you're like, they don't know that you know what they're saying and you know what they're saying? Have you ever experienced that? To me, there's just a fun way to consider this passage that, that he was just kind of sitting there acting like he didn't know what was going on and they're talking about taking the king out and he's taking it all in and they have no clue that he knows what they're saying. I don't know what else you might have heard if that was the case. You probably heard a lot of things about a lot of, a lot of stuff that went on. Um, but in any case, he hears there's an assassination. So he runs and he tells Esther, hey, listen, there's these two guys. They're gonna, they want to kill the king. And Esther goes to, the, goes to the king and reports it. And reports it on Mordecai's behalf. In other words, this is something that not just I've heard, but this came from Mordecai. He's the one that told me about it. So why is that significant? Um, 
first of all, there's the fact that she went to the king is the right thing to do. You're talking about someone who was taken to be queen, whether or not it was against her will or, or something she desired to do. She was taken. She's a captive. She's also an orphan. Just a side note, for someone as a Jew to be able to carry on their father's name, they would have to marry another Jew and have children in their father's name. That's not going to happen if she's the queen of Persia. So there could be a lot of resentment under here, possibly. We don't know. But what if she said nothing? She could possibly be free. Maybe. Or she could get something worse. We don't know. What we do know is she went to the king, and she did what was right in going to the king. And she went to the king not just to get herself noticed, but also to bring up Mordecai and the fact that he's the one that uncovered the plot. I think that's significant. Um, and she still kept her identity as a Jew a secret. And so that mystery continues. What we do get about Esther, though, is that she continued to obey the command of Mordecai as she had always done. Now, that idea of obeying commands is going to come up a little bit later on in our passage together as well. We don't know why these two guys were so upset. They were infuriated. We don't know why. We know that it, has, it may have to do with the context of the virgins being collected. Again, we don't know. We, we don't know if the king just said something or did something that, that upset them. We really have no clue why they're upset. And again, the author of Esther is really good at this. These guys are upset. Just take it at that. Figure out whatever you want to but they're mad, mad enough to kill the king. So the end result, after Esther tells the king, the king has it researched, finds out it's true, and has these guys, I don't like the way the CSB puts it. They actually said um, hanged on the gallows. To me, that brings up images of Pirates of the Caribbean. It's not Persian. So hanged in the gallows, right? It just doesn't seem right. Um, how many of you have the NIV or the NLT? What does yours say? Impaled on a pole. That's so much better. It really is. No, it really is. Um, because it's more, it's more indicative of what would have happened. It's the idea of being hung on a pole. And when we hear hanging something, we think of the Western concept of a noose. But that was not even a, much of a concept back in their day. You could hang things on poles many different ways. You can hang it with a rope. You can just stick it to it. I mean, either way, you're hanging something on a pole. And so this idea of hanging something from a pole, um, I actually did some research on this one, and uh, here's a quote I want to read you from a history collection. Impaling a criminal upon a sharp stake was a method of execution practiced by the Persians, as well as most of the ancient world, several Western European nations well into the 16th century, in some cases beyond. When Persian king Darius conquered Babylon, he impaled more than 3,000 prisoners, an act reported by Herodotus and confirmed in the records of Darius himself. Wow. So when King Darius conquered Babylon, he impaled 3,000 people, and Herodotus was one of the first historians of his day actually recorded that event. So this was sticking them on a pole. Now, I did find um, some ancient artwork and some pictures that actually show what these impalements look like. Would any of you like to see those? Some of you have watched way too many issues of like NCIS and some of these medical shows. No, I'm not going to show you pictures of people getting them. You can search that on Google yourself. I'm not going to do that. 
it's bad. Yeah, it's bad. Okay, there's a lot of different methods that they had, and there's different um, positions for impaling people. You can look that up if you're warped enough to do that. Um, I am not going to show you pictures of that. It's really gory. Uh, often, they would kill the people before they put them on the pole uh, in the Persian time. The, the putting them on the pole was just a symbol. It was just to make everybody aware of what took place. They often would kill them beforehand, but sometimes not. Um, so then it says that these events were recorded in the history of the kings or the historical record or the chronicles of the kings. This is not the biblical book of chronicles. When it says it's recorded in the chronicles of the kings, it was recorded in the chronicles of the kings of Persia. Remember, this is written from a Persian perspective. It was written in the, the Persian chronicles. Um, so these events, the second gathering, the murder plot, the impaling, they all kind of seem disconnected from Esther's coronation, don't they? I mean, you've got, hey, we have a queen, let's have a party. Oh, and then there's this, we impaled these guys. I mean, they just don't seem like they belong together, but the author is setting up the rest of the story and significant events that are going to come back into that plot line. So let's continue on reading. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. So after all of this took place, there's one of those phrases we don't like. After all of this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, or Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. Now, after this took place, that phrase could be anywhere between the seventh and twelfth year of Xerxes' reign. So it could be up to a five-year span, within anywhere in that five-year span. The NIV Study Bible actually places this around the fourth year after, the queen, after Esther became queen. Okay, whatever. Um, don't know for sure, but the big news that we do know is that this guy that we're introduced to, Kaman or Haman, we're introduced to him for the first time. We learned a little bit about him. He gets a promotion. We don't know why he gets promoted. What we know is that Mordecai, who saved the king, gets his name written down in a book, but doesn't even get a thank you. And this other guy, Haman, he gets promoted. So we have this little bit of a social injustice going on here. Um, so who is this Haman guy? He's really the, the quintessential bad guy. If you're looking for a bad person, it's him. Now, he's not the, the really awesome bad guy. Remember, we, we've... <laughs> We were talking about the bad guy that goes to the gates and like, I like this bad guy. This is not one of those. This is one of those whiny, emotional, out of control bad guys that you see in the movies and you're like, you just don't like them because they're just irrational and emotional and stuff. This, this is this guy here. He's a quintessential bad guy, but he's more than that. We're only given really one key detail about this guy. And that, what is that detail? He's an agagite. Isn't that what sticks in the caves? What is an Agagite? Well, they were the enemies of the Jews. They were the enemies of the Jews. They were the descendants of this guy, Amalek. So I want to take you on a little history journey so you can understand the tension that's taking place here. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to flip or tap back to Exodus chapter 17. You only get one detail about this bad guy, and it's significant, I think, if you're going to understand what's really going on here. Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8. 
So the Israelites are heading into the wilderness after leaving Egypt. And this is one of the most famous battles, I think, during this Exodus season, um, because it's one that I, that I remember hearing as a kid. It's brought up in Sunday school classes all the time. Um, it's, it's pretty popular. Exodus 17, verse 8. At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, select some men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with God's staff in my hand. Joshua did as Moses had told him, and he fought against Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And while Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. When he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. And Moses' hands grew heavy. They took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. And so Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, Write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar there and named it, The Lord is My Banner. It's a very famous battle, and most people reference it because of this leadership concept of Moses being up on the hill, and Joshua fighting, and Aaron and Hur holding up his arms, and this idea of, of don't go into your battles unless your support, you know, have a good support network. It's a great stuff to preach. You can have a lot of fun with this, right? It's kind of distorting it a little bit, but it's really fun stuff to preach. But the detail we have to really catch is that last little phrase that we struggle with. Because how does a merciful and compassionate God say he's going to blot out an entire people group? I'll let you wrestle with that while we just ponder that. Um, Write this in a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek. So we fast forward in history of Israel to the time of the kings, and the very first king was Saul. Saul was a Benjamite. God told him one of his first missions was to go and to destroy the Amalekites. So 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, we'll start in 1 Samuel 15. This is what the Lord of Army says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. The command was for total annihilation of the Amalekites, which God had promised in Exodus 17. We're not going to get into the morality of all that and the struggle that we have as a people group, because that's not the part of this story that we're going to focus on today. It's a whole separate, like, five-part sermon series. But the, the command was to go and to destroy all the people and the animals. There was to be nothing left. Men, women, children, and the animals. 1 Samuel 15, verse 7. So Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. He captured King Agag, or Agag, of Amalek, alive. But he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag, and the best sheep, goats, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Okay, so there's a whole commentary there, but... 
Saul was commanded to wipe out this people group completely, to annihilate them, and he failed. Instead, they, they took a bunch of plunder, and they kept the king, Agag, in case you didn't catch this, Agag, Agagites, right? Descendants of Agag. Okay, you're getting it. Okay. They kept him alive, which got him in trouble. And this is the reason that God removed Saul as king, by the way. So Saul, whom God had placed there, failed to follow God. God says, you know what? You, you're not listening to me. Tell, tell Samuel, just tell him, tell him he's done. And he pulls the kingdom away from Saul, gives the kingdom to whom? David, right. Now, Saul actually, after he finds out, and he finds out that he's not going to be king anymore, he gets kind of mad, and then he goes and he actually hacks up Agag and kills him by the end of chapter 15. Um, great, great thing to read um, in 1 Samuel chapter 15. But apparently, some of his dependents survived. It says in here, in our passage, that he killed off all of them. However, we have in Esther, as well as in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, that there still seems to be a remnant, some of the people of the Amalekites that are still alive. So there's been this epic tension between the Amalekites and the Jews. Haman is an Amalekite from the line of Agag. Mordecai is a Jew from the line of Saul. Are you seeing it? This is crazy stuff. This is really crazy stuff. Both of these nationalities, these people groups, have been mentioned when all the other details have been omitted. The author of Esther has been really great at missing a ton of details that we want to know, and he's given us some little clues, and this is what they are. Wow. Mordecai, descendant of Saul, a Benjamite, and Haman, a descendant of Agag, an Amalekite. It's an epic battle that's been taking place since the Israelites left Egypt and now is playing out in two men at the, king, and at the king's gate. And I think that these events that are about to take place that we're going to read about in chapter three are connected to that tension. I think they give us the best possible explanation as to the tension of what happens in chapter three. So back to Esther, chapter three, verse two. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. Now the members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day, and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see if Mordecai's actions will be tolerated, since he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying homage to him, he was filled with rage. When he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it's, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. Now, we have this problem. Why wouldn't Mordecai bow down to Haman? I want you to understand that there was no command in the Jewish law that forbid bowing down to somebody. As a matter of fact, every one of the great patriarchs at some point bowed down to somebody. This idea of a falling prostrate before somebody is a very biblical concept. 
There was nothing wrong with showing respect by bowing down to somebody in authority. There was no law against that. But for some reason, Mordecai was unwilling. I think the best explanation, especially since this passage says, since he had told them that he was a Jew, is going back to that tension of the Jews and the Amalekites. That he wouldn't bow down to the enemy of God. It's possible, some have commented, that Haman declared himself to be a god. Now, to bow down before another god or an idol would be wrong for a Jew, but it's very doubtful that the king, who is the greatest person in the region and didn't call himself a god, would allow somebody under him to declare himself a god. So I'm not sure that that's totally founded, but it's possible. It is possible. We don't know for sure, but I think it comes down to this connection in their history. I think it's also interesting that Mordecai told his co-workers that he was a Jew, but he commanded Esther not to tell anybody. I just find that interesting. Why couldn't Esther say something? Um, And I think that the reference here, why is this reference here, I think goes back again to the, the division between these two people groups. And now Haman wants to destroy all of the Jews all of the Jews. To me, it takes me back to that Exodus connection. Um, but we're not actually told the motives. We're only, we only know that Mordecai would not bow down, and Haman decided to kill all the Jews and to have them all wiped out. Much like the king, Haman is not going to do anything just little. If he's going to, to do something, he's going to do it big, right? I mean, don't just punish Vashti. Let's banish her and strip her title and send her away forever. Um, let's just make sure if we're going to do something, we do it up really big, and that's Haman's way as well. I kind of want to add a little social commentary here. This idea of imposing a single action upon an entire race is surely at the heart of much hatred and discrimination, even today, even in our own country. Whether it's ethnicity or political leaning or skin color or financial status, we can quite easily see the same tendency in our culture and perhaps even in ourselves at times to blame an entire group of people for the actions of one or few. And the result is most certainly hatred and destruction. So just a little social commentary that the heart of man is no different today than it was then, and we have to guard against it just like they did. Chapter 3, verse 7. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' 12th year, the poor, that is, the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in each month, and it fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province in your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So if the king approves, let an order be drawn up, authorizing their destruction. And I, I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. So the king removed his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. 
And then the king told Haman, the money and people are given to you to do with as you see fit. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own scripts, and to each ethnic group in its own language, and it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, to plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. A copy of the text issued as law throughout the province was distributed to all the peoples so they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. And the king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. Okay. So Haman goes to the king and says, listen, there's this group of people that lives among you. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but there's this group. And there's something you have to know about them. They're separate from others. That's true. They have different laws than you do. That's also true. They do not obey the king's laws. That's not true as a general rule. There's exceptions along the way where people did not obey the king's laws. But as a whole, the Jews were commanded to bless those who were over them during the exile to be a blessing to them. And we see that through the life of Daniel. We see that even in the life of Mordecai, how he brought the the plot to be killed before the king. They do obey the laws. They They did obey the governments, but it's this false decree. Um, as was the case with Jesus when he was falsely accused. You have someone in power that wants to do away with his opposition, so he brings a case to the king and says, let me tell you some lies about this person and why you should get rid of them. And it's the same story we see played out multiple times with Jesus in his last days. We see it played out here with Mordecai, Haman, and the Jews, actually, Um, not just Mordecai, but all of the Jews. So the decree, you have Haman, the descendant of Agag, issuing a decree to annihilate all of the Jews because Mordecai, a descendant of Saul, did not bow down to him. Do you see what's happening here? This is the anti-1st Samuel 15 passage. This is 1st Samuel 15 flipped. And now Haman has the title, the enemy of the Jews. So God gave Saul an order to annihilate all the Amalekites, including Agag. But Saul did not kill him initially, and now a descendant of his is giving an order to kill all of the Jews. Um, You even have this repeated phrase. In in 1 Samuel 15, they were to kill all of the men, women, children, and even nursing babies. In this passage, um, Mordecai issues this order, not Mordecai, Haman issues the order to kill all of the young and old women and children. You have the same type of command playing out. I think it's a hyperlink back to our 1 Samuel 15 passage. And then Saul was not to take booty, and he did, right? Haman's command 
is to take the booty. Go in there, wipe them out, and take whatever they have. Now, these people have been in exile for over 70 years. They have a lot. Some of them were probably running shops. Some of them have properties. Wipe them out and take whatever you get. And obviously, he's playing on the greed of the people and of the human condition to want things that don't belong to them. Um, I think he's playing into that quite a bit. But I think it also goes back to that 1 Samuel 15, almost like he's trying to get even for what took place back then. Go and wipe them out and take all their stuff, kind of like they did to us way back when. Now, remember when I said that the, uh, the author likes to make bad guys really bad? So the command is not just to annihilate the Jews, is it? If you have the CSB, it was to what? Kill, destroy, and annihilate. If you have the NLT, it's like kill, slaughter, and annihilate. I mean, I thought about it, and I could do a word study on each of those words and try to show you the little bit of nuance difference between killing and slaughtering and annihilating, but it's not worth it. That's not the point. It's just this triplet that the author likes to use to just get his point across. Like, you're not just going to take them out. You're going to take them out. You're going to really take them out. You're not just going to kill them. You're going to kill them until they're dead. Right? I mean, it's that whole concept of you've got to just overstate this. Um, so you're going to kill, slaughter, and annihilate. When any one of those words would do, we're going to put three of them in there. Um, now, you notice, Haman did not tell the king which ethnic group it was, which people group. But did you also notice that the king didn't even ask? The king didn't say, well, which people group is this? He simply took off his ring and gave a blank check to Haman and said, do with him as you please. He didn't ask for proof. He didn't ask who the people were. This is a bad king, okay? Can we just admit that? This guy's horrible. If you're looking for lessons not to do as a leader, this is one of them, okay? When somebody brings accusations, you should be checking out those accusations. When he heard that there was an assassination attempt, they looked into the matter. Haman comes and says, there's a whole people group that you should get rid of. And he's like, okay. I, I don't get it, but it's part of the story here, and it's just, it, it amazes me how bad this king is. Um, so then there's this bribe, the silver. It's been estimated, I mean, that's, that's a lot of silver. It's been estimated that the amount of silver was about two-thirds of the annual income of the entire Persian Empire. Imagine if somebody offered the president two-thirds of the annual revenue of the entire country as a bribe. That's a huge bribe, right? So take the king, and he says, listen, I'll give you two-thirds of the annual income into the treasury if you let me wipe these people out. He's buying off the king, and the king, again, just gives over the ring. Um, the timeline. In, uh, in verse 7, it gives us a time, and so we know that Queen Esther has been queen for about five years at this point. It's the 12th year of his reign. So Queen Esther has been queen for about five years at this point. Um, and then they cast lots. This whole idea of lots, poor. Um, poor is singular. Purim is plural. Uh, so they cast these dice, so to speak. You could look at it that way. Um, it would be like this idea of chance, but there's no such thing as chance again. And we, we've heard about this before. We've heard about casting lots, right? We were in the book of Jonah. And the sailors, who were not God followers, wanted to know why the storm was there. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah, which is always kind of fun to me that it's like you, you would think that if it's going to be God ordaining something, it would have to go through a godly person. But you have these sailors who don't even know Yahweh that are like casting the lots, and it still goes to Jonah. It's like, 
such a cool concept that the Bible teaches that God's in control, even in situations where the people who are doing things are not followers of his. Really a cool concept. Um, We also have this when the disciples. So you do have God followers who do this. After the disciples met in in Jerusalem, um, after the resurrection of Christ, you have them trying to decide who the 12th disciple is going to be to replace Judas. And they cast lots. Like, okay, we have a couple candidates here. Let's leave it up to God. And they cast lots. And who'd the lot fall on? Matthias, right? So they cast lots. So we have this concept in the scripture. The, the Bible says in Proverbs 16:33 that the lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. This is the Hebrew mindset, and I think it's a great theological mindset. There's really no such thing as chance. There really is no such thing as chance. And that's something that the author of Esther wants us to get through all of these circumstances. There's no such thing as chance. So the date selected is the 12th month. They're in the first month. The date selected by rolling these lots, casting lots, the poor, is the 12th month. So 11 months later, and actually it ends up being 11 months to the date from the decree, which was on the 13th of the first month, to the 13th of the 12th month, exactly 11 months later was the the kill date. On this day, if you live anywhere near a Jew, you are commanded by the king to wipe them out and take their stuff. That was the command. Um, So you have a decree put in every language and sent out to all the peoples in their language for all the officials in the provinces to read to the people. Does this bring back any memories in this book? This is how the whole decree about collecting all of the virgins took place, right? The the decree went out to all the peoples and all people groups. You have another bookend. You're going to get another bookend later on. You're going to get another reference back to that. It's going to kind of separate it up that way. So once delivered, you have three reactions that we're going to look at. You have the city of Susa. They're confused. So imagine this. You live in the city where the king lives. It's a prosperous place. I mean, it wasn't too long ago when they had a 180-day festival celebrating the money and the, and the wealth of this king. It's a well-to-do city. It's the capital of, of everything right now, of the, of the known world, the biggest empire of its day. And you're living there with people from regions all around you, all sorts of ethnic groups are with you serving the king of Persia, Xerxes, in this city. And one day out of the blue, you get a letter from the king that says that you, if you're a Jew, you are an enemy to the king all of a sudden. Now, you might have done nothing wrong. The only person we know that did anything wrong at this point was Mordecai. And you're wondering, what did I do that the king would want to wipe me out? And then you read the rest of the decree, and and it says that all of your neighbors that are not Jews have permission 11 months from now to take you out. Could you imagine walking down the streets of Susa as a Jew, feeling that every person saw a target on you, wondering which of your neighbors would actually pull the trigger and take you out? Is that a pun? Wondering what would happen in 11 months and your, when your family is destroyed. But wait a minute. My kids played with their kids. We lived on the same street, and now they have to take me out. But I worked in the same shop as them. We went to the same markets together. And now for 11 months, I'm going to be looking over my shoulder wondering, Who's going to take me out? 
And I don't even know why. I don't know what I've done wrong. And if you're someone who's not Jewish and you're wondering, okay, well, I'm supposed to kill my friends? I mean, there's that one guy at that one market. I wouldn't mind if he was gone, but I don't want to take out these other guys, right? And you don't know why this decree has been issued. It says the city of Susa was in confusion. And for right, for good reason. The Jews, they started putting on sackcloth and ashes, which is that sign of mourning. They started crying and wailing. They're going to die in 11 months. They mourn, they cry, they fast. I would imagine that they were wondering if this could really even be a dream. The king and Haman, they do what they do best. They went and had a drink together, probably lots of them. Like the only detail you get about him. And then there's Mordecai. What does Mordecai do? So Mordecai has to know that he's partially responsible for this whole thing. He's the reason that all of the Jews are now going to get wiped out. You ever make a decision and then not realize all the consequences it would have on people around you? So this is the one that he realized, I'm sure. When Mordecai learned, chapter 4, verse 1, all that occurred, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He went into the middle of the city, and he cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was a great mourning among the Jewish people, because in every province where the king's command and edict had been reached, they fasted, they wept, and they lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. So Mordecai goes public, not only in the middle of the city, but he goes to his place of employment, the the king's gate, but only as far as the king's gate. And I love, again, you have this triplet. Not only were they to destroy, slaughter, and annihilate, that's the bad stuff. The Jews, when they hear the news, they fasted, they wept, and they lamented. You had this other trip. It's beautifully written. So some, some were so grief-stricken that they were laying in sackcloth and ashes, probably out in the streets so people could see. So in the story, there's significance to certain things that are mentioned. There's also significance to certain things that are not mentioned. So we have that the Jews started fasting, but it's what's not mentioned in connection to the fasting that I think is significant. Generally in the scriptures, when you have fasting, you have something else connected with it. What is that? Prayer. Prayer and fasting. Prayer to whom? To God. Do you notice what's missing in this whole thing? They fasted. There's no crying out to God. There's no prayer mentioned. Usually that would be accompanied by it, but there's not mention of it at all. So two things you have to remember This is written from a Persian perspective. So there's no mention of Yahweh or God in this book. But also you have to remember the primary purpose of this book is to see what God is doing behind the scenes in spite of what's going on in the culture. So we're not going to have anybody talking directly with God because God is working behind the scenes in this book the whole time, the whole time. So prayer would not be mentioned. My guess is they also prayed, but it's not going to be mentioned in here. Verse 5. So Esther summoned Hattach, 
one of the king's eunuchs who attended her and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what, was what he was doing and why. So Hatach went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction so that Hatash might show it to Esther and explain it to her. And he commanded her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Hatash came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. The fact that Mordecai knew how much was promised to the king how much silver, shows that either he was well-connected or that Haman was so arrogant that he wanted Mordecai to know what he was willing to pay to wipe out the Jews. We don't know which, but it's significant. I think it's really cool. Um, Mordecai asked Hatach to give um, the written decree to Esther, explain it to her, and then he, he told her to do, guess what, three things. Here's three things I want her to do. She's to go to the king. She's to beg or implore his favor. She's to plead with him for her people. Now, that phrase, for her people, would imply that Mordecai is now giving Esther permission to state that she's a Jew. For the queen to go to the king and to say, you have destroyed, you've issued a decree to destroy a people group, unless she has some reason for the king to listen to her about why that should be reversed, then there's no reason for her to ever bring it up. So for her to make a case would be for her to actually say, I am one of those people. So she's getting permission. Verse 10. Esther spoke to Hatach and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty, unless the king extends his golden scepter, allowing that person to live. And I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. All right, so there's a couple quotes here we've got to kind of cover. You know we've got to cover them. The first one, deliverance for the Jews will come from another place. This shows an obvious amount of faith on Mordecai's part. Why would deliverance from the Jews have to come from another place? Because God had made his promise through the prophets prior to the exile that a remnant would return back to the land. The Jews could not be completely annihilated, or else God would be a liar, and Mordecai's faith was such that God could not lie. And therefore, if Esther's not the person that God's going to save them through, then somebody else will be. So you get a glimpse into Mordecai's faith, which I think is really, really cool. Um, but you don't actually get that mention. You don't, you don't get the, the statement that God will, will preserve his remnant. And then Mordecai reminds Esther, this will be your death? And the end of your family line. Remember, Esther is an orphan Jew. So she's living with Mordecai, and the only chance of her family line continuing in her father's name is for her to marry a Jewish person and have a son in his name. 
And if she's wiped out, her whole family line is wiped out as well. And that's a big connection for the Jews because that name connected them to the land and to the promise of God and everything. Um, so that's one of those phrases. Deliverance for the Jews will come from another place. You get a hint at the message of the prophets that we've been studying coming through into Mordecai's theology, even though he doesn't mention God. And then there's that phrase. You've probably heard it a lot, you know, for such a time as this. You've ever heard that phrase? Yeah. So who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It's perhaps the most quoted passage in the book of Esther. I mean, nobody quotes the fact that he had, you know, collected a bunch of virgins. Nobody quotes that, and rightfully so. Nobody quotes the fact that, that the, the die was cast. That's not from this passage. What they quote is this one. Who knows? Perhaps you were put here for such a time as this. And the irony of it is perfect. Who knows? Well, Yahweh knows. That's the point of the book. God knows. And as you see the circumstances that built up to this point, you have to come to the conclusion, yes, there is somebody that knows. This is on purpose. It's not just the most amazing series of coincidences you could ever see. Yahweh knows. And if you're a Jew, you have a really good suspicion that God lined all this up, even if he's a silent character in the story. So this statement of who knows, maybe this is so that you were, you know, maybe you were put here for such a time as this, that's really a fatalist statement. So a fatalist is someone who holds the position that all events are predetermined and therefore inevitable. But there's nobody behind it. There doesn't have to be anybody behind it. What's lacking is a theology behind a statement like that. This is very much being an agnostic quote. As a matter of fact, whether you believe in God or not, you could claim this quote even if you were a Persian. Who knows? Maybe this is happening for a reason. In Christian circles, we believe that God is behind all things, including the casting of the lots. We call this foreordination or predestination, God's foreknowledge, and it's always connected to the God of the Bible. Coincidences don't happen, but there's always someone behind it and a greater meaning to it. Isaiah, the prophet, in chapter 46, verse 10 says, speaking of God, I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place and I will do my will. Those are the words of Yahweh. Read Psalm 139. Check out the book of Ephesians. You, you can't read those passages and not see that God declares that he is in control of all things. One of my favorite verses that has to do with this is Ephesians 2.10. says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1 says that God chose us before the foundations of the world or chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world but that we were then saved to do works that he's already determined. This idea of God's hand being involved in everything is something that we hang on to as Christians, as well as the Jews would have hung on to. So going back to the book of Esther, what's missing is Yahweh. Mordecai could have said, who knows, perhaps Yahweh put you here so that the remnant can be preserved. That's not what Mordecai said. Instead, we have this fatalistic message. Verse 15. So Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, nights, night or day. And I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. 
After that, I will go to the king, even if it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. So again, we have fasting, but no mention of prayer. We even have fasting, and the servants of Esther, who were probably most likely not Jews, were also going to fast. So even if they were fasting and praying, who would they be praying to? So you have this religious, this religious ceremony of fasting, um, but the lack of a mention of God here. But there's still a subtle message of hope, even in this passage. How long were they going to fast for? Three days and three nights. Okay, so tell me, where does this take you back to? Who's the last story we had with the three days and three nights? Jonah, the pre-exile prophet. Perhaps we're meant to go back to Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9, and we're meant to go back to that passage when Jonah's talking about sinking into the depths of the pit and, and death overwhelming him and knowing that his time has come, but God is my salvation, and I will once again enter his temple, and I will once again be in his presence to praise him. And perhaps we're supposed to take that prophetic prayer in chapter 2 and realize that it's about the nation Israel, and even the book of Esther is calling on that with three days and three nights. There's hope even when it appears that your situation is hopeless, is a message of the prophets. So Esther is resigned. If I die, I die. Again, a very fatalistic statement. Um, if God wills, might have been nice. Perhaps God will allow me to live. Would have been great. But it's just a simple, eh, if it's my time, it's my time. We would say that today, right? Again, very fatalistic. Um, and then we have this shift. It's a subtle shift. But at the end of this passage, it says, and Mordecai did everything that Esther commanded. It's a subtle little thing, but I like it. I have a feeling that as Esther's dad, this is not the first time he's done something his daughter wanted. And any of you that have had daughters know how easy it is for a daughter to persuade or manipulate dad to get what she wants, right? Amen. That's right. But this is a little bit different. This word command has shown up in Esther a lot. Matter of fact, I'm going to give you the references. Chapter 2, verse 10, Mordecai commanded Esther not to tell her ethnicity. Chapter 2, verse 20, Esther did not reveal her family background because Mordecai had commanded. She obeyed Mordecai's command. Esther 3, 2, everybody bowed down before Haman because the king commanded it. Same word. Chapter 3, verse 12. The, the royal decree that went out was commanded by Haman. Chapter 4, verse 5. Esther summoned Hattach and dispatched her, dispatched him, commanded him to go to Mordecai. Chapter 4, verse 8. Mordecai commanded um, Hattach and commanded um, Esther, actually, of what to do to go. Um, and to actually go before the king and to beg and plead for the people. Later on, Esther spoke and commanded uh, Hattach to go to Mordecai again. 
And then in chapter 4, verse 7, it says that Mordecai did everything that Esther commanded. It's the first time that we have Mordecai obeying a command, <laughs> um, if, you, if you will. The command of the king to bow before Haman, he didn't do. But this command of the queen, he did. And it's the first time that we see Mordecai really, I think, submitting to the leadership of Esther as his queen. It's a subtle shift, but it's really cool. And even though we've had this word command happen over and over and over again, it's not going to show up again until much later in the book. I'm not going to give you the reference. I'll make you wait for it, but it only shows up one more time. It's happened over and over and over. It's going to happen one more time. David, uh, just so that you know, David's not here today still. He's waiting for a daughter that will soon wrap him wrap around her little finger. Um, and he was quick to point out that, that even though I made the statement that every dad who's had a daughter you know, knows how that daughter can, Mordecai was not actually Esther's physical dad, but was an adopted dad. I still think it applies, David. So you just put that in your notes. And I'm going to call it out when I see it happening with Eden, just so you know. Um, so these two chapters remind us of one of the major differences, I think, between a Jewish-slash-Christian worldview and much of the society around us today. Without the presence of God, we're left to either a fatalistic approach where we have no hope except for the fact that things are going to happen and there's nothing you can do about it. Or worse, we have a self-deification scenario where we make ourselves out to be God because there are no other gods. So apart from a theological or deistic worldview where we see that the God is in control. We could be very much like Haman. These two chapters remind us that God is still in control and that we are not masters of our own destiny, that our circumstances are part of a bigger narrative that's playing out, that there's a grander story that is taking place, even if our circumstances don't seem to be what we think they should be. And I want to leave you with something to chew on as we, as we wrap up here. As we read about the words of what Esther said and what Mordecai said and of how the Jews responded, any of the things they did could just be moral practices or things that good people do because there's no mention of God. Their, their statements could be simply fatalistic and secular and not in any way connected to their theology or beliefs in God. So I want to ask you this. If someone were documenting your words today, if they were writing down your conversations throughout the week, at work, at home, in the store, if they were reading through your text messages, would they be left wondering if there was a God at work in the world at all, or even a God in your life? Would you come across as a fatalist, or as a deist? Would you come across as someone that sees that, well, whatever happens, happens? Or would you come across as someone that says, whatever God ordains, he ordains? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder that you are in control. 
You're in control even when it seems like everything is stacked against us. You're in control even when it seems like people who don't follow you make decisions that impact us. You're in control even if our lives feel like they're out of our hands and we can take a fatalistic approach of thinking things are hopeless. We thank you that we don't have to live in a hopeless state, but because of your son, Jesus Christ, and the life that we have in him, we not only have a relationship with you, but we have a future and we have a hope. We know that your plan is perfect, that your ways are amazing. Father, teach us to trust you and to follow you and to look for the ways that you're at work, even if you seem to be silent. We pray in your name, for your kingdom's sake. Amen. I have a feeling that David chimed back in, see if there's something he wants you to know. He just sent me a smiley face. So yeah, we'll see about that one, David. So uh, announcements. Um, quickly before we go, uh, Eden has not appeared yet. I, I think um, that Eden is just kind of chill. And now that, you know, she's just waiting for grandma to get here. And, uh, and so now that, that, that Betsy's here, we're really excited. Um, you know, we've been telling Eden she can come anytime now. So keep praying for David and for Ellie. Um, and that Eden will just finally decide, you know, I mean, she's got it good. She's, she's warm. She's fed in there. And she's like, come on, you can come out at Eden. So just pray that Eden kind of gets ready to, to make her grand appearance. Um, also, we sent out an email about changing church software. Um, check your email. You should have all the details on it. Um, if you have questions about that, send me an email or a text message. If you didn't get the email, then I probably don't have the right email for you. So check your spam folder. And if it's not there, um, please text me your email address, and I'll make sure you get a copy of it. Uh, we are switching from one program to another. And some of you have, um, I've actually got the question from somebody that said, you know, what about the online giving? Um, that was in the old program. That's going to be transcribed over to the new program uh, in over, over the next several weeks. So eventually, all of if you've been giving online, all of your giving records, even if you haven't been, I think it's all reported in there. All the giving records will come over to the new program, so you'll have your tax documents at the end of the year, those things. Um, so uh, you can check out the blog article on the website um, if you also if you didn't get the email. So appreciate your patience with us as we switch over um, to a different software package, but we're we're really excited about it. Uh, and then Laura wanted you to know that if you are if you play an instrument uh, and would like to use that gift occasionally on Sunday mornings to contact her and uh, she'd like to, to get a hold of you. So I think that's all of the announcements that we have right now. Um, did, did I miss anything, Doug, that you know? Did I miss any announcements that you know? of? No? All right. Cool. All right. So great. Thank you for being here. Um, God bless you all. Have a great day. And if you have questions about what we've covered today, feel free to chat with me afterwards or send me a message.